how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Obadiah and Joel, part two. In the last talk, we looked at Obadiah, the first of the great group of prophets associated with the exile, and now we're moving on ten years after Obadiah. His prophecy was almost exclusively directed at other nations and held out a prospect of good things for Israel. But now we have a stark contrast. Joel, or Joel as we call him in English, he came ten years later and he picked up this same concept that Obadiah had originated, that the day of the Lord is coming when he will settle accounts, when he will have his day. But the big change in Joel is that Joel said that day is also going to mean judgment for Israel. Now this was a shock. It's a shock when you tell people in church that they won't be safe till they get to heaven. Oh, but I thought I was safe. You know, that came out in numbers for one or two of you, I think. The idea that you can have your name blotted out of the book of life comes as a shock to God's people. Oh, I thought my name was in there for good. No, it stays in there as you remain faithful to Jesus and go on trusting him and obeying him to the end. And it came as a shock to Israel to be told the day of the Lord might not be good news for you either because God is absolutely fair and sin in God's people is just as serious to God as sin outside God's people. When will we learn that? Romans 2 makes that quite clear. Paul says to believers, if you do the same things that you criticise unbelievers for, do you think you will escape the wrath of God? For God has no favourites and sin in God's people is just as serious as sin outside God's people. The idea that once you belong to God you can sin freely is just totally unbiblical, that he's given you a blank checkbook to write a check whenever you sin. That is just not so. And sin is serious to God, whoever commits it, and he has no favourites. It would be totally unfair of God if he condemned an unbeliever to hell for adultery and said to a believer, but here's your ticket to heaven, it doesn't matter if you do. That is a dreadful distortion of God and the prophets had to correct that idea in Israel first because Israel thought they're okay. God's going to judge everybody else but we're okay and the prophets had to say, you're not okay and Joel was the first prophet really to do so. Well, Elijah had challenged them pretty strongly but Joel was the first to say the day of the Lord could be darkness, not light. Amos was going to say the same thing. It could be a bad day for you and not a good day. Now what sparked off this prophecy of Joel? The answer is a natural disaster. A plague of locusts had hit the country. Now I don't know if you've ever experienced a plague of locusts. I've only done it once and that's enough. I've got a picture of locusts here, rather difficult to see because they're pretty well camouflaged. They're like great big grasshoppers. There's one with its back legs and uh, there's another and there's a third. But that's only three. 
in a swarm of locusts you can have up to 600 million of those things and they are they have a voracious appetite and their heads are just like horses I don't know if you can see that clearly but they have a <coughs> horse's head on a large grasshopper's body and my experience was in Kano in northern Nigeria and it was midday and suddenly the sun went out I thought it's an eclipse of the sun and then I saw this huge black cloud coming towards us and it had blotted out the sun and soon we were in darkness as if it was midnight and they were travelling, I timed them at 12 miles an hour and it took an hour and a half for them to pass and I saw the Africans, poor Africans running out to beat them off their cabbages and a group would just alight on a cabbage and phew, the whole thing had gone. The trees after they passed were stripped even of the bark, never mind the leaves, and were just white skeletons. Every living piece of vegetation just went and you could hear them chewing. You could hear chew, chew, chew all around you. You were walking on them. I'll never forget it. It, it is a horrific experience. I mean, they look quite nice like this. And in fact, there's a cage full in Kensington next door to Harrods if you want to see them. And it, it's interesting to see them in a cage. But if you have 600 million eating up every living thing, every plant they can alight on, it is disaster. And when they've gone, it looks like a desert. There's not a green thing to be seen. A swarm can be 400 square miles. 40 by 10 miles a swarm and 600 million of these creatures blotting out the sun. They can eat up to 80,000 tons of food a day and of course when they come that's it. You have lost everything. They travel 2,000 miles a month. They lay 5,000 eggs per square foot in the desert. And these little things come out first as hoppers and then they go through a series of molts and develop wings. And they usually travel about two to ten miles every day for six weeks, the little hoppers. And then they swarm and they move. And that happened to Israel. Now of course it had happened in Egypt. It was one of the ten plagues. Except that somehow the land of Goshen they didn't touch Interesting, isn't it? God protected his people in the plague, but now it had come to them. It's comparatively rare in Israel. They come up from Africa. It's common in North Africa, but in Israel it's not common. And when this came, Joel was the man who saw that God was behind this. And he said, this is the first of God's warnings to you, that if you go on like this, worse will happen. So he was a prophet who interpreted the event and said it isn't just an accidental event, it's happened to God's people because God is giving you a warning. So serious was the result, they didn't even have enough grain to make a grain offering in the temple. And so the worship stopped. They didn't have anything to offer. And the, the nation faced drought and bushfires and starvation, devastating. The vineyards had gone, the cornfields had gone, the orchards had gone, the olive groves had gone. There was nothing. The economy was at a complete standstill. And Joel said, God did this to you. Well, when do you know when a disaster is from God? Do you remember York Minster burning down? 
I'm convinced that was from God. One of the things that convinces you is the unusual character. The lightning that struck York Minster came from a cloud no bigger than your hand against the sky that circled York Minster for 20 minutes in a blue sky. The cloud wasn't even big enough for rain, yet from it came that lightning bolt without any thunder that burnt the cathedral down from the top down. And they had just renovated it and installed the latest smoke detection and fire equipment and it blew the whole lot. And choir boys marching across to the cathedral saw it happen, but they heard nothing. There was no thunder at all, but they saw the lightning. And uh, I got a, a map of that cloud from the meteorological office and 16 unbelieving meteorologists said that had to be God. The most unusual thing they'd seen in a long time. People said to me, was it God's judgment? I said, no, it was God's mercy. He waited till everybody left the cathedral after that degrading consecration of a bishop who denied the faith. It was his mercy. He could have done it while they were all in there and he didn't. So it wasn't his judgment. But I believe it was a warning. But not every lightning strike is a warning from God. We need to know. And one of the signs is a very unusual feature about it that is not natural. The unnatural often demonstrates the supernatural. Another is the discernment of God's people. And uh, there were many people with prophetic gifts who saw God's hand in that. And uh, especially if it's prophesied beforehand, which that wasn't. But there were many trembling beforehand as to what God would do with such an unseemly act in his name. Disasters, whether they come direct from God or not, are always a reminder of God's judgment and it's important to see them as that. Once Jesus was asked, when that tower fell and killed those people in Siwam, was that an act of God? Were they worse sinners than anybody else? And Jesus said, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish so that every earthquake, wherever it happens, every typhoon, every flood is a reminder to us whether it was direct from God or not and we mustn't again rigidly say everyone must be of God or once again you'll force the facts to fit your faith and we mustn't do that, but some are, but all of them are reminders. But this was more than a reminder. This was a direct act of God, a repetition of what God did to the Egyptians, but he now is doing it to his own people. And that sparked off this sense of prophecy in Joel. Now once again, I always find it helpful to analyse the whole book and get the shape of it. And for once, the chapter divisions are spot on. So that's good. They got it right this time. Actually, it was all done, the chapter divisions was done by the Bishop of Lyon while he rode on horseback from Paris to Lyon and it was just done in an afternoon almost. And some of them he got right and some of them he got terribly wrong. But chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the three actual sections of the prophecy. Whether they all delivered at the same time or not, we don't know. And verses 1 to 12 are a vivid description of the locusts, almost a, a, a biological description. It, it's a remarkable description of the locusts, of how they march like soldiers and how they ate everything up and how you could hear them munching. It's, it's vivid. And in 13 to 20, the verses at the second half of the chapter, he calls for a national act of repentance. 
And he says if you don't repent, then there will be a terrible repetition. God is giving you a chance. Now turn back to God and repent of your sins or else worse will happen. Now he doesn't say repent of what? And so we're left to guess, or not guess, we're left to do a bit of research in the book of Kings to find out what was happening at the time that the nation should be doing something wrong. What was happening nationally that deserved such a fate? Well, the only thing I can come across is interesting. By the way, when he calls them to repent, he says, otherwise you will mourn as an aged virgin whose betrothed died before marriage. What an interesting simile. As soon as I read that, I thought of Miss Favisham in Great Expectations. You know? An aged virgin mourning her betrothed who dies before her marriage. He said, that's how unhappy you will be for the rest of your lives. So what was going wrong? Well, there is one clear thing. There is a reference to the priests in Joel, but there's no reference to the king, and yet he's accusing the nation of something wrong. Now that gives you the clue. When you read the book of Kings, you find that there is a queen on the throne, not a king. Now that was not God's will, and God had promised King David that as long as he, as the kings kept the statutes and commands of God, they would never lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And that was God's strict command. He allowed them to have a king, but not a queen. Furthermore, who was the queen? The queen was Queen Atalia, and she had been the queen mother. And when the king died, she seized the throne and she murdered every son of the king so that she could be queen. And nobody had done a thing to stop her. And she had killed every boy of the royal line and seized the throne herself. Well, her mother was Jezebel. And that tells you a lot. Look what havoc Jezebel had wrought in the northern kingdom through the king she married. And now her daughter has killed all the king's sons, all the line of David, except one. And one was saved by the high priest and hidden in the temple and secretly brought up. And that was the situation. And it nearly meant the end of the royal line. Had she managed to kill every boy, there couldn't have been a son of David from the royal line. I believe Satan was behind this, as Satan was behind Herod's attempt to kill the son of David when he was born. And Jezebel was a killer, and they had accepted her as queen. Even the high priest didn't object, but at least he had the courage to hide this boy. And the boy was Joash. And shortly after Joel preached, they got the courage to remove that woman from the throne and put the boy Joash, though he was only seven years of age, 
on the throne. He'd been the youngest of the princes. There'd been other princes ready to take the throne, but they were all murdered. But the little boy Joash was put on. Now that, that is terrible. And that's the only thing I can find at that time that could be construed as a national sin, that the people accepted the situation. Now you can take it or leave it or do your own research, but that's what I find in the background. Fascinating, isn't it? So, he said, unless you truly repent and put things right. Now maybe Joel himself didn't have the courage to name what was wrong and talk about the queen or whatever, but he didn't mention the actual sin, but he said, you repent, put things right. Otherwise, there will be a terrible repetition. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, he describes a repetition of the plague of locusts. And yet, when you look at it more carefully, you begin to ask questions. Is this really a plague of locusts? And really what I think he sees is an army coming like a plague of locusts. And when you see a plague of locusts, it is like an army. All these horses' heads marching in ranks, they, they do march in ranks. They come together, boom, 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 and just eat everything. And I think chapter 2 is saying this plague of locusts is just a prefiguring, a picture of an army marching, of thousands of soldiers marching on the land, coming on horseback and just destroying everything. Because I think he's seeing the Babylonians come. The Babylonians alone, among all the ancient peoples who conquered others, had a terrible scorched earth policy. And they not only killed all the people and the babies, but the Babylonian policy was to destroy every living thing. That's why they destroyed even the trees and the sheep and the cattle. The Babylonian army left nothing alive. And that's a very similar picture to a locust plague, see? And so I believe chapter 2, the scholars argue about it, but I believe it's not another plague of locusts. Couldn't be worse than the plague that had, but you've got a picture here of a locust army. And the interesting thing is that in the book of Revelation, the plague of locusts comes up again at the end of history and is immediately followed by an army from the east of 200 million soldiers. So I think there's a relationship here between an animal locust swarm and a human locust swarm coming to leave nothing living in the land. And he said, that's what will come. And in fact, he said, one day you'll hear the trumpet alarm, the shofar, and that will be blown. And that's the second plague. Well now, he then says again, but what God is looking for is true repentance. Because we know that the reaction to his first call repentance was that most people went out and got drunk. They still had enough wine in bottles or jars and instead of repenting at his first sermon, they just drunk themselves into a stupor. Interesting that people have twofold reactions, don't they, to coming disaster. Some prepare and repent, others, let's get drunk. I'm afraid that's what they've done. So he issued a second call and this time he called for true repentance. And one of the <coughs> memorable phrases in this second call is, rend your hearts and not your garments. I'll never forget 
standing on the Mount of Olives near the tomb of one of these minor prophets who is buried at the top of the Mount of Olives. And standing outside the grave was a Jewish businessman in a very good suit, pinstripe suit and uh, beautifully tailored and he was obviously wealthy, had the usual gold cufflinks and things and gold tie-pin and he stood there and he was weeping and I hid behind another tomb and I watched him to see what was going to happen and I saw him take this beautiful suit and he took it by the lapel and he ripped it and he went on ripping that beautiful suit to pieces as he wept in front of the tomb. The first time I'd seen someone rend their garments and it was an outward expression of his grief at the death of this prophet and he tore that suit to pieces Boy, it went through me, <laughs> but he just tore it to pieces. And what Joel says, even that isn't good enough for God. It's your hearts. It's not what you do to your clothes. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Tremendous appeal, because that's what they did when they really grieved for someone. They <coughs> ripped their garments to pieces and went about with the shreds of their coat hanging down to show that they were mourning. We just maybe wear a black thing around your sleeve or even that's not done now. Wear a black tie maybe, but they rend their garments in grief. He said, it's got to be more than that. Your hearts must be torn. Are you really sorry about what's happening? And then he promises them that if they really repent, if they really do it from their heart, that God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. <laughs> Now there's a phrase you must have heard. What a wonderful promise it is to restore the years the locusts have eaten. You know, my grandfather was a pastor and uh, there was a man in his church with a long grey beard who came to every meeting in the church. Came morning service, evening service, prayer meeting, Bible study group, midweek meeting, Boy Scouts, Girl Guides, <laughs> Cubs, Brownies. He came to everything. And it was really embarrassing to people. He was always at everything, women's meetings, the lot. And so my grandfather was told to go and speak to him about this. And my grandfather went and, and said, uh, could I ask you something? He said, why, why do you come to everything at church? He said, you don't need to come to everything. God doesn't want you to come to everything. Why do you come to everything? And you know what he said? He said, I was 67 before I came to Christ and I'm trying to catch up on lost time. I don't know whether to laugh or cry at that. When you think of the years you've wasted, the years that the locusts have eaten, but God says, I will restore the years the locusts ate. What grace! And I've seen that. I've seen God use a person in the last few years more than others in an entire lifetime. He can restore the years, the locusts ate, but only if there's true repentance. And then he moves on to some wonderful promises. He says, if you truly repent, never again will I do this to you. Never again, never again, never again. And the phrase keeps coming, beautiful phrase. If you really repent, never again. And not only that, but he said, there will be a total restoration, not just physical restoration of the crops that the locust ate, but a spiritual restoration. 
And that's when he makes some wonderful promises which are picked up and from which we benefit too. And one of the greatest promises, he says, in that total restoration that will follow true repentance, I will pour out my Spirit on all kinds of people. That's the literal translation. Not on everybody, on all kinds of people, regardless of sex, class or age. And your young men will see visions and your old men will see dreams, dream dreams. That's why I still want to see visions. <laughs> and he says, and your maidservants and your men servants will prophesy, regardless of age, sex or class, I'll put my prophetic spirit in all kinds of people, if you truly repent. And that, of course, that promise is picked up by Peter. It wasn't fulfilled for another how many centuries? Until one day when the people were all together in one place, it happened. And Peter said, this is that. This is what Joel said was going to happen. You see, you often hear about the priesthood of all believers, but I firmly believe in the prophethood of all believers. Because that's what it means. It means that now anybody on whom the Spirit comes can prophesy. It means a great increase in prophecy, not a decrease. And Pentecost means the prophethood of all believers. And it was Peter who said, what Joel said has at last happened. And of course, remember that at Pentecost, all the 120 were Jewish. It came on the Jewish people. Long before it reached us Gentiles, Pentecost was a Jewish occasion. And on the very day when they were celebrating the giving of the law, which had led to the death of 3,000, God poured out his Spirit which led to the salvation of 3,000. Amazing how it all fits together, isn't it? What a pattern. That was the first wonderful promise in the restoration. And the second part of it said there will be signs in the heaven, that even the sky will take note of what's happening on earth. And Joel said two things will happen. The sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood. Now has that ever happened? Well, it did happen. When Jesus died, the sun was darkened for three hours. Furthermore, I read an amazing astronomical paper. I haven't got it with me, unfortunately. I've got it at home. An amazing astronomical paper where, in which an astronomer worked out that at the time there was the eclipse of the sun and worked out the Passover time and the full moon and all the rest of it, that there must also have been an eclipse of the moon at that time. And the last time I saw an eclipse of the moon, I was in Windermere, and you remember, we went out and saw the eclipse of the moon, and the moon went blood red. And in fact, that is often what happens at the eclipse of the moon. And this astronomical paper was actually arguing that at the time Jesus died, the sun went dark and the moon went red. Well, I can't confirm that, but the Bible is quite clear that that sign will appear one day in the sky before the end of the world. It didn't appear on the day of Pentecost, but it will. 
And the third thing that Joel said was, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, there'll be signs in the sky because the, <laughs> the sky responds to significant events on earth. That's why there was a star up there when Jesus was born. You know, people foolishly tell me that those wise men following the star proves that astrology is all right. And I said, hey, you've got it totally wrong. Astrology believes that the position of the stars influences a baby at the moment of birth. I said, at Bethlehem it was the position of the baby that influenced the stars. <laughs> totally different from astrology. And when Jesus died, the sun went out and even the universe responds to significant events down here. Amazing that, isn't it? It's, we're not governed by the stars, they're governed by God and what He does here. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, it's in ourselves. Who was it said that in the play Julius Caesar? And we come to the third thing that Joel promised and that was salvation for everyone whom the Lord called and who called on the Lord. There's a double call in salvation. God calls people to be saved and when they call on Him, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't like telling people to say the sinner's prayer. I tell them just to call on the Lord themselves. That's what they need to do. Just call Him Jesus and call on His name. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and for us the name of the Lord is Jesus. And I, I don't say to people, now repeat these words after me. It's not very helpful. I just say, you call on the name of the Lord. You talk to Him. You ask Him to be saved from your sins. You ask Him to do what you need to be done. You call on His name. Very important that people themselves should call on His name for themselves and whoever does that will be saved. Peter picked that up at Pentecost and 3,000 people called on the name of the Lord and they were saved that day. So that's Joel's promise of a total restoration, not just of the crops, not just of their wine and their corn, but of their hearts and their lives and a whole outpouring of the Spirit of God. But alas, it took a long time before it happened. And Joel says this is all going to happen on the day of the Lord. And he keeps using this phrase, the day, the day, the day, the day. And the New Testament picks that up as well, on the day. There's a day coming. We don't need to believe it's a day of 24 hours. The word day is flexible in Scripture. The Hebrew word yom can mean a whole epoch. The point is Satan's had his day but the Lord's going to have his day. That's what we mean. If I say the day of the horse and cart is over, I don't mean 24 hours. I just mean that era is finished. It's over. We're in the day of the motor car. And that's the meaning of the word day in Scripture. And there's coming the day of the Lord when He has His say, when He brings the world under His rule. That's what it means. Man has had his day, the devil's had his day, and one day God will have his day and it will be the day of Jesus too. And it'll last quite a long time if the book of Revelation is anything to go by, but it will be his day. Others have had theirs, now it's his. So I want you to get a flexible notion of the day of the Lord. We mustn't say, ah, 
Would it be Thursday or Wednesday or Tuesday? <laughs> no, it's the day of the Lord when he has his say and when he comes to put things right and vindicate himself. This day of the Lord is a very prominent part of the New Testament. I made a list of all the references to it, but it's far too long to read. The prophets pick the idea up, the apostles pick it up. There's a day coming when the Lord has his day. That'll be the last day. But we are now in the last days and they began when Joel's prophecy came true and the Spirit was poured out. From that day we're living in the last days. We've been in the last days 2,000 years now, but we're in the last era of history and the next event is the return of Jesus Christ to planet Earth. So we're in the last days. We should remember that. We're the final part of history. The final chapter uh, has a vision of the Valley of Decision. Now that's a real valley. It's outside Jerusalem. It's on the eastern side of Jerusalem. It's uh, the Valley of Kidron. Um, I wonder if I've got a picture. No, I haven't got it handy. I'll show it to you in a later talk. But uh, Jerusalem has three valleys. There's the Kidron Valley to the east, the Tyropean Valley up the middle, and the Valley of Hinnom up the western side. And Jerusalem is on the tongue of land between the first and second valleys. And the Valley of the Kidron lies between the city and the Mount of Olives. And to this day it's called the Valley of Judgment. And it is full of graves. It's full of Jewish graves. It's got some Christian graves in it. It's full of Muslim graves because that is believed to be the place of resurrection when God will make the decision about our eternal <laughs> destiny. It's called the Valley of Decision, but I've heard that uh, misused by preachers. Joel says, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision, and the usual application of that text out of context is that there are multitudes about to make a decision for Jesus, and it's often part of the appeal, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. Are you going to decide to become a Christian or not? You know how evangelists talk. But listen, the decision is not man's decision at all. It's the valley in which God decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's the valley of his decision and he will have the last word and it's his decision that decides our eternal destiny. And Joel sees multitudes, nations in that valley of decision, the valley where God decides the eternal destiny of every human being. It's the final judgment again and this time it's the judgment of the nations. When God takes vengeance, on those who have set themselves against his people, against his purpose, against what he has tried to do in the world and will do, and his decision will decide it. And the last word is the vindication of Israel, that God will vindicate his people and restore them to their land. Now this raises a very big question about which I have to say that there are deeply divided opinions in the church today. That's sad, but Joel and many other, well, Obadiah and Joel and most of the other prophets all end up with promises for the future of Israel. And the question is, when will those unfulfilled promises be fulfilled or will they be fulfilled?
And this is where there, I'm afraid, are four different opinions in the church today. And the one I'm going to share with you is not the majority of opinion. But I'm used to being in a minority opinion on various issues. And I'm concerned not with where the majority is, but what is right and what is biblical and what is the truth. <coughs> you see, there are many prophecies of Israel back in her land and all of it and fully restored. And they have not come true. Not yet. And the point is, will they ever? Well, here are the four reasons, but they break up into whether these prophecies are taken literally or spiritually. And you can take a promise literally or you can spiritualize it. Let's see what happens. If you take the promises literally, you apply them to Israel. If you take them spiritually, you apply them to the church and call the church the new Israel and say that the promises are now fulfilled in the church in a spiritual way. We don't have a land, for example, but God blesses us spiritually because we are now the new Israel we've taken over from the old. And we call this replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel and probably the majority of preachers in this country would take that view. And they would call the church the new Israel and say that the promises made to the old Israel are now spiritually fulfilled in us as the church. But then they become a little confused because they claim all the old blessings for the church but they keep the old curses for Israel. <laughs> which seems to me a little unfair. And some old authorized versions of the Bible labeled the prophecy as Isaiah, each paragraph is labeled, blessing for the church, curses on Israel, blessing for the church, curses on Israel. Which seems to me a little unfair. If you're going to take those prophecies to Israel as fulfilled in the church, then at least take all of it and don't leave the curses on old Israel and just claim the blessings for new church. But you'll find that's what's done, which to me is dishonest. If you're going to transfer them to the church, then do so. So they say the curses are still on old Israel, so old Israel becomes extinct. The blessings are on the new Israel, the church, and go through to eternity. Then those who take them literally are also divided into two groups. Those who say these promises were all conditional and therefore have been forfeited by Israel and therefore extinction. There is no future for Israel. They have actually forfeited their place and they are now out of God's purposes. We can evangelize Israel but just as any other Gentile nation as it were. They are now just a nation. They are no longer God's people. Others say, but the promises God made to Israel were unconditional. He promised them the land forever. Now he said, you may lose it, but I will always bring you back again because it's yours and I've sworn it's yours. In which case, then there is a future for Israel. Some would say, well, they have been fulfilled in their return from exile in Babylon and so now it doesn't matter if they're extinct. Do you see, all these ways lead to the extinction of Israel. 
And they say they did get back their land again after uh, Babylon, so the promises were fulfilled. And there are those who say, no, they haven't been fulfilled. God still has to give them all the land he promised them and to take them through to eternity. My own position is right here. And I believe that Paul had that position when he said they may have rejected his God, but God hasn't rejected them. And after all the Gentiles are in, all Israel will be saved. God doesn't divorce people. He hangs on to them and he'll bring them in at the last. And I believe in what we call the millennium, which again is uh, a minority view today, but I've expressed it in my book, When Jesus Returns. I believe Jesus is coming back to reign here. And the Jew and Christian will be brought together in one flock under one shepherd and that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. The last question the disciples asked Jesus, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? Will you do it now? And he didn't say that's a silly question. He said, it's not for you to know the date that Father has fixed for that. Does that mean they'd ask the wrong question? No, they just got the timing wrong. That's all. I believe Jesus' answer on that occasion is quite clear. Yes, it's going to be restored, but not yet. Meanwhile, I've got a job for you to do. Go and preach the gospel to all the nations. So you have to face the fact there are all these different views and all of them finish up with old Israel becoming extinct, except this one. And I believe the promises of God can't be broken. If they could, of course, the church could be finished as well. So you better face the fact that if God can't hang on to Israel, he can't hang on to you either. So let's uh, take the word of God. When Joel says, one day the mountains, he said, will drip with new wine, and that's a phrase from Joel. He said, one day the mountains of Israel will drip with new wine. I believe God meant it. And Joel's prophecies will all come true in God's good time. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.